The Collective Whisper Podcast with Simon King. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Collective Whisper Podcast. I am your host, Simon Kay, and we're glad to have you on board again. We have a very special guest this evening and one you're going to really love. So before we get to that, we'd just like to remind you, please support the show. Please review the show if you can and if you like, and please spread the word. We would be much obliged. Thank you very much. This week's guest is Mr. Carl Verheyen. Carl Verheyen is a highly accomplished American musician renowned for his exceptional guitar skills and versatile musical career. He's best known for being the guitarist of the legendary band Supertramp, as well as the leader of his own band, the Carl Verheyen Band. Beyond that, he has established himself as a sought-after session guitarist in Los Angeles. Guitar Magazine ranked him as one of the world's top 10 guitarists, a testament to his immense talent and influence. Furthermore, he received the prestigious Best Guitarist Award at the LA Music Awards during their sixth annual ceremony. Throughout his illustrious career, Carl Verheyen has collaborated with numerous esteemed artists such as the Bee Gees, Chad Wackerman, Dolly Parton, Victor Feldman, Richard Elliott and Stanley Clark. He has also left his mark on various film soundtracks including The Crow, The Usual Suspects, Ratatouille and Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. Additionally, his guitar skills have graced popular TV shows like Cheers, Seinfeld and Scrubs. Not only a performing artist, but Verheyen has also been involved in music education. He served as an adjunct instructor of studio jazz guitar at the prestigious USC Thornton School of Music. Additionally, he frequently provides instructional performances at the Musicians Institute in Hollywood, California. Furthermore, he has authored instructional books like Improvising Without Scales and Studio City, a compilation of articles for guitar for the Practicing Musician magazine. It was founded in 1987. Verheyen has released solo albums, Atlas Overload, Solo Guitar Improvisations and Reel to Reel. He has collaborated with notable musicians on projects like Trading Aids, featuring renowned guitarists like Robin Ford, Albert Lee, Joe Bonamassa and others. Albums like Mustang Run, 2013 and alone solo guitar improvisation volume 2 2015 showcased his mastery of both instrumental and vocal pieces. Verheyen continued to release new material including The Grand Design 2016, Central Blues 2018 and Sundial 2021. Carl Verheyen's impressive career marked by his virtuosic guitar playing and diverse musical contributions have firmly established him as a celebrated figure in the music industry. His work with Supertramp and the Carl Verheyen band as well as his solo endeavours have left a lasting impact on the world of guitar and music as a whole. Welcome to the show, Carl Verheyen. How are you? I'm doing really well. Thank you very much. It's- so, Carl, what are you up to at the moment? What's happening in your world? Well, I just finished releasing a brand new album, and it's called Riverboat Sky. And it was written over the last couple of years. But the nice thing is we were able to tour uh, just after the pandemic. People were still wearing masks and play the songs. And then yet another tour. So... I really played these songs for over a year and a half on the road before recording most of them. There's a few ones that have never been played prior to the sessions, but it was great because uh, speaking of Supertramp, Rick Davies, the leader of the band Supertramp and the keyboard player and one of the singers, he, he always lamented that the, the album is a demo for the tour meaning you record the music, then you go out on the road and it gets much more developed and the arrangements really find themselves and parts sink in and get better and everything. So this was a beautiful opportunity for me because we were able to get out on the tour and work 
these songs and see what's working, what's not. I can, you know, touring, you, you sort of sometimes develop a bit of shtick, meaning uh, this worked, this great lick worked wonderful last night. I'm going to put it in tonight. And then a new tour develops new, new material like that. So over the couple of tours, I was really able to develop, not necessarily in the solos, but in the, in the parts and the vocals and the vocal harmonies, I was able to really get that together. So when we went into the studio with the touring band, we added, um, we added uh, an old friend of mine, Chad Wackerman on drums. And uh, incidentally, I just played with him in Stuttgart last week. And then we added, um, we added Jim Cox, who's been on all my records on, on keyboards, and uh, Dave Murata, John Mater, and Troy Dexter uh, did, did all, you know, they're the touring band, which are brilliant musicians. So it was good to just get some fresh stuff on there, like a different drummer on this tune and a different keyboard player on that tune. And, uh, but we knew what we wanted, you know, I knew what I wanted. That was a real pleasure. So I think it's my best record yet. And it came out on vinyl as well. One point I wanted to say to you there, which was, is a great point is what you were saying there about the whole demo turning into the album being really a demo for the tour, because I imagine, you know, for lots of bands, what happens is you, you make an album, then you tour it, and then in some ways you'd nearly like to re-record the album because you you found better ways to play it or what should have been there, you know. So it's it's um, they're always a more polished result at the end of the tour, aren't they? Yeah, and on tour, you know, when you play a song towards the end of the evening and you are so warmed up and so so in the moment, oftentimes the solo ideas are just flowing much better than when you're in a studio environment with headphones on and everything else. So, so all that's good. I'm really, I'm really proud of this record. So I've been doing that. Um, recently I did a little tour of the Pacific Northwest here in, uh, in the USA, Washington down the coast. And then, uh, then I went to Stuttgart to play the uh, Stuttgart Jazz Open Festival, and um, okay. we did that. And then we came back and did a 1,200-seater in Fort Wayne, Indiana, which was you know, just basically called a fly date. But I, I don't love fly dates. Um, I have a big, big guitar rig that sounds amazing, and it's just like I feel like you're not really hearing the real me without – without that. Now I know that's psychological and everything, but it's so inspiring to hear stereo clean sounds and sort of a wet dry distortion sound that's all dialed in. So that's that's really cool. And that's what you're used to as was your rig as well because it's funny, you know, I've seen over the last few years some players changing from, you know, analog rigs to digital rigs. Like for example, you know, Guthrie Govan or Guthrie Govan if you want to call him from the UK phenomenal player but he recently has changed a lot of his rig and he said for him he thought it would be a terrible process because you know the whole feel of these amps and the pedals and everything but then I suppose for some players like that you have the versatility of the digital age and it's easier to bring things around isn't it yeah yeah and you know I've played with Guthrie a bunch and he, a lot and uh, he's such a good player I think he could find a way to make the sound work for it's getting really good i took a thing called a kemper profiler into into sunset sound i have a lot of amplifiers i have about 50 amplifiers i keep one two three four five six, i think six or seven in europe but here at my house i have a good 40 45 i took 
I didn't need two Vox AC30s or two Fender Princetons or two of the same kind of um, you know Fender heads. So the what what I did was I took about 32 amps down to Sunset Sound Studio Two, and we I hired an engineer, and that's the room where Van Halen recorded, and it's just a fantastic sounding guitar room. And we we profiled um, about 32 of my amps five times each with five different microphones. So we're, we took all the, all the right mics that you would use to record guitar and we put them on those amps and we profiled them. Yeah, it took, it took two days to do it. You know, boring, boring days, you know, go out. Yeah, tedious. Change, yeah, tedious stuff. But we had a second engineer to run out there and change the mic out and then profile it and then save it and then label it. So I sell that whole collection at a place called Sweetwater, which is a Sweetwater. Yeah, you know Sweetwater. Yeah. So, so, but, but I, I use that for demos and for, you know, playing on people's records when I don't need to mic something up and it does sound really good. I can't see using it live. Um, a student of mine plays in the band Chicago and we saw the band a few years ago and I went backstage and I could, he goes, how was the guitar sound? And I said, you weren't moving any air, were you? <laughs> Meaning you weren't micing yeah. any speakers. It was all in your ear, your earbuds, your ear, your ear pods or whatever. And uh, it sounded great. It sounded good. The sounds were right, you know, perfect. But I could tell that it wasn't coming off the stage in any way or even off under the stage. <laughs> yeah. And that has a different effect because, you know, if you consider the old wall of marshals or whatever you want, whatever amps you were using, when you have the raw power coming from those and the, the speakers are moving, if that's all taken away, it's a different dynamic, different feel. And of course, if you never use much of that, you don't miss it so much. But I think it's hard for the purist then to lose that, as you said, rush of air, isn't it? Yeah, there's something about uh, the ears in your back, in the back of your knees, uh, hearing it. <laughs> yeah. So I had a good talk with Eric Johnson one time. We were doing this festival together, and he and I have the same concept. We we stand in a place where our rig is behind us over there, and so we don't stand in front of the rig. It's 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 better to hear what it's doing in the room. So move to the left a little bit and let and hear what it's doing in the room you know that that's that's an important thing it's, it's it, it it dates back to all the records i've made where i ask the engineer if we're doing a guitar solo go ahead and put whatever you mic you want on the speaker cabinet but i also want you to go out there and walk around the studio room to hear where the sound is blooming where it really kind of opens up and it just sounds great and put a microphone there and you might have to get up on a like a sweet like a sweet spot. Yeah, yeah. You might have to get up on a stool because it's here, or you might go way over in that corner. But you just find it. Then sometimes, because the phasing can cancel it out, they have to time align the tracks. But once they do, take the track that's right on the. I keep pointing down here because there's a there's a couple of Fender amps right here, but. Um, I, you, if you if you then time align the tracks to move the close mic back a little bit, there might be a little bit of latency when you're playing, but you light up because you hear what you're hearing when you go out in the room. You know, you hear it. So if I'm in the control room hearing it over the speakers, I don't mind that little bit of latency, latency just so I hear the big sound. 
And and the thing is, you know, I noticed on one of your videos as well, like when you're recording all of the chains, you know, the amp, the mics, the the different settings, you're you're kind of having everything in such a way that you can change each one separately. So you know, if if the amp's working perfectly, if you have a good mic placement, but maybe the room acoustics, you know, you can change that chain in the recording process and, and you know, sweeten a spot or, you know, lower the bass frequencies. Whereas, you know, obviously, if you're just recording with the amp and you have the mic and you're, you're, you're not kind of putting them all into each separate channels, maybe you're mixing it up too early. So you kind of have that chain and then you can mix it better later, can't you? Yeah, you sure can. Yeah. I try to hire a great engineer. I hire always hire great engineers because I figure my job is to know the music and to know how to get the sound. Their job is to capture it, you know, and no microphone placement and EQ and, you know, all kinds of phasing things, things that I almost don't, don't want to spend the time doing. I know a lot of guys are really good at engineering. My engineering chops are just enough to get me able to do home studio stuff for for people's records and stuff like that. So I, I got just that amount. You know, if you asked me to record a drum set, I would have no idea. <laughs> I suppose what happens is over the years, you have discovered your sound, you know, and, and whether that be doing session work or doing work with Supertramp or with your own Carol Verheyen band, you know your sound for that setup. And I've heard even, you know, John Mayer talk about you know, sometimes going doing session work and he would just have a laptop and he, everything would be clean and then it would be reamped later. So I think there's so many different ways to do things nowadays, isn't there? Because yeah, there sure is. Like even here, I have it somewhere. I bought one of these things recently and it's a, just like it's a Nooks thing and I use it for practicing and it basically is just a headphone amp. But it's amazing when you consider the sounds they can get from headphone amps nowadays compared to 10 or 15 years ago yeah or track or, or 30 years ago you know when when uh, tom schultz came out with the rock yes band, i remember in a little box like that yeah yeah he he would called he called the local guitar center in los angeles there was only one guitar center it became a huge chain but he called the local and he says i'm looking for somebody to demonstrate my new product at the at the nam show and they called oh, me. Wow, okay. 1983. So I was, I was pretty young. And I went I went to the NAM. I think it was my first NAM show. And I played four days out of the Rock Man. And um, I think they gave me $1,000, uh, a hotel room, and a Rock Man. So I, I was like, because Tom was there, you know. Things have changed in the sense that, you know, I, I know myself playing in bands over the years. In some bands, you have a simple setup. In other bands, I was playing one band. I had a guitar and a synth setup. And we were doing kind of more progressive stuff. And, you know, the problem is the more things you have to set up, the more things can go wrong during the set. And this is the problem then if you're doing guitar parts and keyboard parts on a MIDI guitar and then the synth goes down, you're kind of having to just have guitar sound. So the, the simpler you can make it for yourself to set up in that kind of situation is great. So modern technology is good like this. I had a terrifying experience. We had a record release party concert at a giant club called Billboard Live. And it must have been around uh, maybe the end of the 80s. And I had the, what they called a Bradshaw rack, a Bradshaw rig. There was a guy named Bob Bradshaw, and he was rack mounting all the studio gear in 16 space racks, plus an amp rack. You know, it was just a monumental, it was um, programmable, um, 
programmable effects loops. So my entire concert, my entire show with my trio, three guys, right, was going to be song one. The intro is preset one. Then preset two was the chorus. And then preset three was the solo. And then four. Then bank two was the same. So right Literally, right before showtime, some stagehand walks by and trips over my cable that plugged the whole thing in and basically geeked all 99 programs. So the entire show and the whole thing, I mean, I had different reverbs for different sections, only stuff that I knew, you know, well, the delay can change and go to slapback delay and then it can come back to program time delays. It was all MIDI, right? So it geeked it and I had nothing. So, um, Backstage, there was a Fender Twin, and in, in my car was a rat pedal that I still have today. It's, it's, uh, it's like somewhere over there on that, on that bunch of pedals over there. But I had a rat pedal in my car and I think a delay pedal. Oh, okay, and, um, okay. I just plugged into this Fender Twin and played the whole show like that. And at the end of the night, I got all these people going, man, your sound was amazing. How did you how did you get that sound? And I go, oh my God, I'm playing through a rat pedal and a delay and getting rid of $40,000 worth of stuff over here. And so I ended up selling it all and um, getting rid of that whole, that whole Bradshaw rat, <laughs> yeah, all yeah, that yeah. outboard gear. And just because I realized my 1961 Strat that I was playing that night through a, through a blackface Fender Princeton sounds better than all that stuff, you know, so. The problem is you can over elaborate because once you get into sequencing all these sounds and, and, you know, especially with presets where you're, you know, you can have three different sounds in one song and, you know, there's automatic switching and all of these, the more you get into it, it can become kind of like an obsession. And then you're at the end of it thinking it's taking away from the fun of the playing. So I remember myself just when you'd be playing that kind of a gig and then it was nice to just pick up a guitar and play with just maybe a, a sustain pedal or with a, a nice boss distortion, you know, something simple. I play with Stuart Copeland a lot these days in his, his thing he's got going. And I tell him, you know, Andy Summers really was responsible for a lot of us L.A. studio guys going down that long, dark highway of the, you know, the, the effects racks and everything. And because uh, that was what was popular and you needed to show up at a session and sound like that, not just the police, but a lot of other bands, you know, Cindy Lauper and you uh, too. And so on. Yes. Yeah. So, and you know, and this guy, Bob Bradshaw was building racks and effects systems for all those people from David Gilmore to, uh, to Andy Summers, to uh, the edge, you know, everybody was having a Bradshaw rack. And I'm, I have this, I had the second one he ever built. I was an early adapter, but anyway, long story short, I got rid of it all. And I believe in understanding one's signal path. So if anything goes down, there's a workaround. You can plan B, but a simple plan B. Yeah. 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 That you understand. You don't have to call a tech in to do it. Yes, exactly. 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 So let's go back a little bit to, you know, your kind of beginnings. So you know, you, you were born in Santa Monica. I, I, I'm nearly sure that's correct anyway. And so for you then, you know, as a young boy and you kind of, what drove you to want to become a musician? What was it like? Was there, 
Was it something in the house? Was it something that made you say, I want to be that band? I want to be that artist? Well, my dad played ukulele, a little bit of piano. Both of my grandmothers played piano. Um, it was more like I had a couple of, I had three older cousin girls. And when we go over to their house to play with them, they had, uh, one of them had George Harrison posters up on the ceiling and on the walls and everything. So they kind of, they probably were the ones that turned me on to the Beatles in about 63, 64, because they were 64 actually, because that's when the Beatles hit America, right? And, um, but another thing that was really powerful, powerful for me was, uh, the birds. And, um, I, I asked for a guitar for about a year before on my 11th birthday, my parents, my grandmother gave me a nylon string guitar and my parents gave me a guitar lesson later that day. And the first song I learned was my favorite song at the time, which was Mr. Tambourine Man, the Bob Dylan song covered by the birds. Right. And, um, I think I learned that like on day, day one, you know, I mean, he showed me the chords and here's how you do it. And I, you know, I was just struggling with it, but I had plucked on my dad's ukulele and my buddy's sister's guitar for the year before that. So, you know, I got, I got just rolling right away. And my influences started coming really fast. Um, Cause besides uh, Roger McGuinn and George Harrison, you know, by the time, I don't know, there was a lot of surf music going on in Los Angeles. You could come home from school every day and while you're doing your homework, just turn on the TV and the local stations would play these surf shows, just surf music with guys surfing. You know, that's what you, it would just be sort of background wallpaper. But, you know, I heard all that great reverby surf guitar and I didn't know who I was listening to. Probably a lot of Dick Dale and the champs and all kinds of bands. But, um, if I jumped to when like real virtuoso guitar playing started to happen, I would have to say it was the album Wheels of Fire by Cream. So that's a few years later. You know, I'm, I'm definitely simmering along and listening to, you know, Creedence Clearwater and all that stuff, you know, going on uh, and learning it, learning it and playing it. But once I heard like Crossroads and Spoonful and stuff like that, I jumped into like trying to be trying to be a something heavier than just an accompanist, you know, like strummer, strummer, singer guy. And, uh, but I, I had another great experience. Um, I joined all these, I was in all these bands and stuff through high school and playing and high school dances and proms and all that stuff. But then I think I was 17 and we were, we were in Pasadena where I grew up. We were out to dinner. My, my dad took us all, the whole family out to dinner. And as we're leaving, this place called the Sawmill in Pasadena on Lake Street. I see this guy singing and playing in, in the bar and I go, you know, I could probably do that. So I asked the waitress there, you know, who do I talk to about doing that? You know, singing here, playing here. And she goes, um, the, the manager's in tomorrow morning, come on down. So I brought a guitar and I said, I want to play. And it turns out he was looking for somebody. I played him three songs. One was a solo acoustic version of Here, There and Everywhere by, um, by Paul McCartney. And um, he said, you got the gig. It, it pays 35 bucks a night and you'll do Sundays and Mondays. Well, he, then he said, you are 18, aren't you? And I said, no. When do you turn 18? I said, in two months. So when I turned 18, I called him back and he goes, you got the gig. So I start playing and singing two nights a week and it eventually became five nights a week. And then one day this guy comes in while I'm doing my, you know, my solo acoustic thing. And he said, uh, I like the way you play, kid. If you ever want to get together and, and jam a little, that'd be great. He was an older guy. 
I said, sure. How about tomorrow? So he goes, yeah, come on over. So I go over to his house and let me see if I can demonstrate this better than, uh, yeah, I can probably demonstrate better than describe it to you. Yeah, this one will do. This is the guitar I was playing before you called, so I may as well keep it rolling. It's warmed up as well as yeah, you. Yeah. That's good. He, he basically pulls out some music and he says, um, and, and, and he goes, let's play this, you know, and I wasn't a very good reader, but I could read chord changes. So the first chord was an F major seven, right? So that, that chord I knew. The second chord was a D minor seven flat five. And um, I said, okay, well, here's a D minor seven. One, two, three, four, five. So is, is that it? And he said, yeah, but you should probably finger it like that. Of course, you can use an open string. If you want the flat five on the top, is that a lot of people put the flat five on the bottom. You could have the seventh on top or the seventh could be on the bottom. Uh, this is probably my favorite voicing. But, you know, a lot of people use this, put the root on top. Of course, that's the most common one. You can do this one, and that's basically nothing more than an F minor six. So every time you have F minor six. So my, my brain just blew because... I thought I was pretty good. I could play I could play Crossroads by Cream. I could play all kinds of, you know, I could play pretty much, you know, Stairway to Heaven, whatever's on. He gave you an encyclopedia to read, really, just by giving you all those different voicings. Yeah, he did. Yeah, and so it, it gave me like this this new chain of study. I didn't really think of myself as wanting to be a jazz player, you know, like Joe Pass or Pat Martino or anything. But it started me down that highway of learning, learning voicings and how to play over chord changes. And uh, it really, really changed my life right that day. Right. And then I, I, I immersed myself in that music in, in jazz and I learned countless chord melodies and learned songs and studied and took lessons and uh, got gigs. And I even went to Berklee College of Music for three months and, um, you know, the summer accelerated program. I just really got into it. And it was kind of like later towards the end of that five-year period, six-year period, maybe. Um, I was driving in my car and I heard this Joe Walsh guitar solo on the radio. You know, I'm popping through the stations, you know, and and I hear this amazing Joe Walsh solo, and it I literally pulled the car over because I realized the state of rock and roll guitar had really come a long way since I left off, you know, back when Aerosmith was just starting out. And, you know, that to me sounded great, but it was scored more more Rolling Stones stuff, you know. It, 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 it wasn't really any new concepts for me. But long story short, it's just the, the Joe Walsh thing. I pulled over and I realized, you know, I love that. That's the music of my people. What am I doing? I can play 25 choruses on Stella by Starlight, right? But this is the music of my people, as well as country music, bluegrass music, blues, um, you, you know, uh, fusion music, uh, you know, weather report, you know. That moment in the car listening to the stereo, I, that has happened to lots of artists too. I think like I, I remember a story about Eric Clapton when he first heard Hendrix, you know, and he heard it on the car radio and he he had to put, he said he had to pull over. And I, I remember somebody, somebody talking about Rory Gallagher in the same way. And there are certain artists, aren't there, that when you hear, you kind of feel you have a hold on what you either want to play or what you want to listen to. And it doesn't matter like if it's heavy rock or blues or whatever. Sometimes you hear somebody and you go, wow, 
that changes your whole trajectory, doesn't it? Right. And then it, it occurred to me that if I dig it, I must learn it. If I love Albert King or Mike Bloomfield, I need to learn what they're doing and assimilate it. And I think that that cross-pollination of styles is what makes music go uh, progress, you know. Music that doesn't cross-pollinate like Dixieland jazz, you know, it's very, or even, well, I think gypsy jazz is starting to really open up, you know, but I hear guys like Tony Rice, who's a bluegrass player, you know, he plays all that, all those kind of licks, that, that stuff, right? I hear him playing like some Pat Martino licks and adding, you know, stuff like that into his solos. And I go, wow, that's, that's just, um, it's, it's like the cross pollination, cross pollination. <laughs> so. Yeah, yes, exactly. But you see, for you, I suppose all of that uh, kind of qualities that you aspire to have really benefited then you uh, you later as you became a session musician because you could be called on to do all kinds of work, pop work, blues work, everything, uh, soundtracks, everything. So that really benefited you to be able to turn on those different styles. Yeah, and I had experiences where this guy, one time a guy called me and said, it's a country record. Just bring a Telecaster and a little Fender amp. That's all we need. And I go, okay, so do you mind if I have my cartage delivered, meaning my cartage company drop off a couple of trunks of guitars and some amps and some pedals and stuff? And he goes, oh, okay, go ahead. So I show up and there's another guy there with a Telecaster and a Fender amp, right? And he has the cowboy shirt and he's got the boots and he even has the hat. And I go, wow, okay, so we start in and I don't remember what happened, but we do the typical country version. The guy, the producer goes, let's just rock it out a little more. So I go and get, put the telly down and get a Strat or something and put a little hair on my sound, a little distortion. And, oh, that's better. Let's even rock it out more. Then I get out of Les Paul and SG and we, and we take it to the next level. And then he wanted an acoustic version, which I, the only guy that brought an acoustic, right? So we played an acoustic version. He asked me to come back the next day and the guy with the cowboy hat wasn't there. You know, so in other words, so in other words, the specialist blinders on, <laughs> I play one style really well. That's not how you make a living. You know, you make a living by being more versatile. Yeah, you have to be able to adapt because, you know, when they say beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but I always kind of twist it and say music is in the eye of the ear holder because yeah, yeah. things can change. And it's like saying you only like one style of music. That's not true because you can hear something that can totally blow you away and say, I love that. And so the thing is, I think for producers, when they hear a guitar player who has that feel in their fingers, they're thinking, what else can this guy do with this track? What else can he, let, let me see. There's many, there's many uh, tricks to doing that studio thing. First of all, being able to read music takes you out of the, I can only do record projects and demos. It, it gets you into, I can do TV work, I can do movies, soundtracks, and I can do uh, jingles. And there's so much more money in that kind of work. You know, just, just from a financial standpoint, you know. So learning to read was a really important thing for me. And I, I'm self-taught on that. You know, I just had to sit down and do it. And um, I actually did it with another friend. A buddy of mine was frustrated, too, that we were losing work. So we decided to just buy a stack of music about that big, spend $75 each on different um, 
duet books and music books, you know, flute books, clarinet books, trumpet books, uh, high reading books, uh, saxophone books, you know, anything in the treble cleft that wasn't exercises. Um, we both bought that and the other two requirements were a coffee pot and a metronome. And uh, we'd meet at my house Monday, him Tuesday, him Wednesday. And we did it for about six months and really learned to read well. And I don't read, I don't get the opportunity as much as I used to, but it just comes back, you know, it comes right back to me. So it was a really good thing to do because the, the sound, the movie soundtrack thing is amazing. You know, that, that is a gift that keeps on paying for, for the rest of your life. You know, every one of you, you do. So. Depending on different types of gigs, you get sheet music and, you know, maybe some of them are just like cheat sheets, you know, where you have the chords and the chord structure and the arrangement. But then others, others let's say they're working with composers, you're getting very, very detailed sheet music and they want you to be able to play and read everything on it because I suppose the thing with with guitar musicians over the years they would look at the sheet music but then when it comes to the solo they would do their own thing maybe and stuff so the more detailed your eye is for that sheet music you don't have to stray away as far well I mean there's two different things I mean reading chord charts in bar lines is one thing you know uh, here's here's a typical example this is just uh, just just a bunch of bars with chords over them reading notes is a whole other thing and guitar is difficult you can you can play f in five places on the guitar you know know, and so it's really important to be able to read in every position it's it's uh it's quite a it's quite a thing one one learns the c major scale right and then learns it in, in the in every position, right? Right, like that, right? But then one one also needs to be able to do this. In other words, know it from here to here. So wherever you are on the guitar, you know where those notes are. So, uh, and that's in all 12 keys. <laughs> so that's the key to reading that, that and, um, you know, most most of the people that are going to listen to this podcast are going, yeah, I don't need to know that. And you don't. You don't. You can play guitar all day long, you know, uh, without knowing how to find the notes on the staff or where they are in the guitar. I love that line. I think it was Joe Pass said that to you. Was it? If you played in one key and you know all the keys. Yeah. If you play a song in one key, you should know it in all 12 keys. That blew my mind because that, that showed you what a heavy musician he is. He relates he relates those um intervals and everything it's pretty cool so i think what it is the more detailed your brain is as a musician the more it wants it kind of needs to be fed so i can imagine that time you and your friends studying all this sheet music whereas somebody else would maybe say oh they're nerding out on this you know they're they're going into real detail but for you guys it's kind of like discovering a new science because you're like, oh, my God. Oh, and there's a voicing there. And oh, my God. And oh, I understand it more. It opens up a whole new world, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And, you know, the older I got, the more I just got into like harmony and enjoying like what I would be driving home from somewhere. And I'd hear a song on the radio and go, God, I've always loved that song. And my ear's good enough to where I can go, OK, that's the two chord. That's the five chord. Here's a perfect example. Um if I play like uh, 
I'm driving home one night and I'm hearing that. I'm going, okay, when I, when I go that's the two, that's the five, that's the one. Yeah, I can hear it. I'm not quite sure about this chord. It turns out the flat seven to the five. And then when Elton went uh, on the my ear goes, what the hell just happened? You know what he did? He went, he did what Cole Porter and a lot of those jazz guys do, what McCartney and Lennon did a lot. They went to a key that's up a minor third. And instead of going right there, in the key of F, they went to the four chord, which is B flat, but they made it a minor, so it's two. So they need, it's like they harmonized. Yeah, they went to the two, five, one, four, right? And, and then to the five chord of you know, to the chorus. So what, what I was going to say, as I've gotten older, I've been really intrigued by songwriters and harmony and like i asked myself why the heck do i love this song it's such a great piece of music why and then i learn it and then i kind of study and i go okay now i see because of the way he just jumped up to that up a minor third to a new key and found a way to modulate back to the mothership key of f and so i've done that countless times with people like brian wilson and paul simon and um, you know, even Billy Joel, you know, uh, all, all kinds of Beatles songs. You know, McCartney was a real musical, um, you know, harmony guy. He really knew. But, but Lennon, in a sort of primitive way, the way he breaks rules, uh, you know, there's a lot of rule breaking going on with both of those guys. In term, you know, rules that are meant to be broken in order to make it an interesting song you know yes of course of course that's the beauty of music isn't it because you know some people would say oh this guy's too technical and then you get someone who plays simple chords and there's more harmony or melody but it's a getting it's a meeting of the two that's the beautiful part isn't it you know because you can you can look at like real guitar virtuosos and maybe they're too technical and then you see somebody else who's very technical but you see you you have the feel so you might fall into that where you go I love his wizardry on the guitar and the technical side of it, but he has that feel maybe that Stevie Ray Vaughan had or, you know. So I think what it is and what I always used to think was when I started out my musical journey and I started learning songs by ear and I always learned them by ear and then teaching other people and stuff. The great thing about it is sometimes you learn a song and you think, oh, I have it, I have it. And then you learn, after you've learned it, you listen again, you go, no, hold on. There's a chord there that's different to how I heard it the first time. So I love that part of it. Yeah, you definitely develop better ears over the years. And uh, things that I figured out back in uh, the 70s are <laughs> completely different now. You know, there's a better way to do it or... <laughs> exactly, yeah, it could be. The two. So, but I, I really love that we're talking about harmony because I don't think a lot of guitar players think about that. And songwriters, you know, so many songs... Um, that are written today, they're really not thinking about, you know, they don't, they don't modulate somewhere. A modulation means going to a new key for emotional or lyrical impact, right? In other words, if I can go somewhere to make the chorus a bigger deal than the last couple verses, you know, that's a beautiful thing. And so many people don't, you know. Having said that, a song on my new record, it's called Spike the Punch. And, uh, I challenged myself to write a song. I didn't do it as a challenge. I just did it 
and it turned out to be fine. All on one chord. All on one chord. Wow. <laughs> you know, it's all it's all F minor, pretty much. You know, I started with a I started with a riff. <laughs> syncopation you do at the end even though it's on this that chord it changes it doesn't it you know what i mean the rhythm the rhythm yeah, makes yeah. it sound like it's something different right yeah it isn't static yeah i look at rhythm guitar is is one of the most important parts of making a living rhythm guitar you know and you can be uh you can be influenced by so many different people i i, I take a lot of inference from steve cropper for the R&B stuff, Jimi Hendrix, who got his stuff from Cropper and Curtis Mayfield. I love Jimmy Nolan, who played with James Brown Band. Um, I love Larry Carlton. One time Larry called me to sub on a gig and uh, he showed me what he had played on the record. And I went, wow, there's such inventive ideas, you know. That's cool. Yeah, and it's nice because like you said that, what's really nice about guitar chords and voicings is sometimes you can hang on one chord like to get melody ideas, but just changing the voicings can can you can hang there for longer. You know what I mean? Because it's that whole I used to love that exercise where you just start on a basic A and you do all the voicings all the way down through it. And you're like, wow, even though they're the same chords, they're like different. Oh yeah. And you can you can start to think like um I'll get this maple neck guitar because I think it'll show up better on the screen. Um you can start to think like a piano player uh, as opposed to a guitar player, because, you know, guitar players all start off with cowboy chords. There's an A, there's a, I call them cowboy chords, the nice open voicings there, you know. But eventually, but eventually you can take those same triads. You can take those same triads and you can use them like that, or you can take the middle note out. So if I take that C sharp out and put it up an octave, I get that, that voicing. And if I take this, take the middle note, the E out, I get that one and becomes, and becomes, and. So now if you learn that kind of mentality, like that's kind of more of piano voicings, you know, if you think like that, you can have a cool, you can just have an entirely other approach to playing rhythm guitar. In other words, if I have to go D to A, I could go. Mm -hmm. 
and that's you know that's really nice because you can get some lovely sounds there and some really nice voicings out of those different can't you yeah very different yeah i mean uh this this is a cool thing if i start with say um i'll start with an a I can go, I can make it an F. You see, that's the root third fifth, root third fifth of F. I can make it a B flat. I can make it a G. I can make it an E flat. You see, so just in that little space, you know, I can get all kinds of chords, and that's just on the bottom string. So all that happens, you know. That happens up there too. So, anyway, it's pretty cool. That's cool. That's really nice. And so, when you were doing a lot of the session work then, and obviously that kind of led, you were in Wildcat Studios, and that kind of led, led to the introduction to Super Tramp. Was that something because you were a session musician? Were you thinking, I want to get playing with a band and tour, or were you kind of happy doing your own band and doing session work? What What was your kind of career goals at that stage before you started playing with Super Trap? That's a good question because I never really thought of that. It, uh, I never thought in terms of that. Um, I, I was making a living and that was my goal. It's like, I, I want to wake up every day and play the guitar for a living, right? You know, and uh, I, and so far, you know, at age whatever that was, 29, I, I had been successful. I'd never had a, another job, right? I'd only played guitar my entire life. Um, when Supertramp came along, um, yeah, I was doing a session somewhere, and then a guy, I, I got along really well with this engineer. I think he was a British guy, and we exchanged numbers. He was getting good sounds out of me, and I had a fun day, you know. Uh, later on that night, like literally 9.30 at night, I got a call from Supertramp's uh, front of house engineer who was kind of arranging these auditions, and he asked me to come down the next morning. Um, at 10 a.m. And uh, I said, well, I, I, I don't really know any of the songs. And this is before you could go on YouTube and learn a few Supertramp songs, right? So uh, I went down there and uh, I told Rick Davies, I said, hey, Rick, you know, nice to meet you. Uh, I got to confess, I really don't know any of your songs. I don't know any of your music and, uh, you know, but I can learn, I'm a fast learner. And he goes, we don't want to play any of our bloody songs. Let's play the blues. <laughs> so we were off to the races. We just played it. We, and little did I know, they recorded it. And uh, I was like the 19th guy they'd heard in the course of a week or two, you know. And I got along with them. They had me sing something, you know. Um, and they were, they were recording it on reel-to-reel -reel tape. And they called me back later that night, the management company, and offered me the gig. So, But I was a sideman until about 1990. That was back in 85. I was a sideman until 1996 when they made me a, a member. So Super Tramp, obviously, before that, before that kind of in the, you know, the, with their early hits, it was a lot of um, piano sounds, a lot of keyboards and stuff like that. So the, their sound has kind of changed over the years. So when you came into Super Tramp, did you feel that they wanted you to do what they'd already been doing? Or did you feel they wanted you to put something new into the sound? That, that's a great question because it has a, it has a, a funny answer. Um, they had just recorded a record called Brother, Where You Bound. And uh, they had a, the, the title song had, uh, um, it had David Gilmore on it. And the, it was a really long David Gilmore solo. 
And uh, they, they said, we want you to learn it note for note. And it's like, you know, seven minutes of, it would have taken me forever. And I could do it. I could write it all out and I could study it and I could figure it out. But I somehow had the balls to say, guys, I tell you what, I'll start it like he does and I'll end it like he does. But if you let me improvise all in the middle, uh, I guarantee it'll live and breathe every night. And some nights I might be really inspiring, but I promise I will never suck. And so Rick said, we'll give it a go. <laughs> and I remember I had to play over something that was like... Uh, Real simple thing, right? So a G sharp minor, more sharp uh, to E. Kind of a reggae vibe, no? Well, no, it was more of a shuffle. I'm trembling. I don't mean to imply reggae. starts uh you know some like you know whatever uh, i don't remember what i did but i just started like he did and ended like he did and 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 they dug it they, they i was okay okay sold the next one that they said we want you to play it note for note was goodbye stranger right and that's got the famous, uh, the famous wah-wah thing. So I said, yeah, tell yeah. you what, I'll start with that wah-wah thing, and I'll end with a similar figure with a wah-wah uh, 8-B-A. I'll do that, and let me improvise in the middle. We'll give it a go. So I did it, and they let me do it. And then slowly but surely, except for maybe just a few things that were really iconic that I had to do, like Bloody Well Right had some stuff you had to do in the beginning, and so did uh, Rudy, a couple of the other tunes, you know, that really needed to be that solo. Um, for, for, you know, for the most part, they just let me do my thing, and that was a huge, uh, I would say, a coup for me because... I don't really want to go see the Eagles and see him play the solos exactly like the record. I really don't. Want I want, I'd rather see what the guys come up with since then, you know? You know, I always love that approach is like, it, and I think lots of guitar players love that, you know, saying, well, I, I started like the original and I'll end it or whatever, because they're thinking, yeah, it's, it's a really cool solo, but I want to put my own spin on it. And then they're like, well, then the crowd won't like it. And they're like, yeah, we'll, we'll give them the opening few bars of that, you know? And, and and if you're if you're a good guitar player and you can turn that into something new, I think even the person who wrote the song will appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, re you're right. You know, it, it takes it somewhere. It lets it live and breathe every night. That's what my my uh, argument was. If we just keep it stagnant, like uh, you know, going through the motions of playing what's on that record, you know, and 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 it really it really became a great band when the original five guys. So Roger Hodson left. And then I worked with original four. And then when it reconvened, the bass player, Doogie Thompson, uh, was living in Chicago and hadn't really picked up a bass in the interim 10, 15, 10 12 years. So they asked me, um, you know anybody? And I got the guy that was currently playing in my band to jump in, a guy named Cliff Hugo. And once they saw what Cliff could do, bass 
you know, uh, which was so much, he was, you know, a super professional killer bass player with amazing time who was, you know, versus a guy who hadn't played in all those years. Um, they just said, oh, yeah, we got to go with this guy. So the band just got better and better. The original drummer, original sax player and, and Rick. And um, so, yeah, it was. It, it, That's the thing about groups, isn't it? Because. When a lot of groups start, they might be just a couple of friends and, you know, they might say to one guy, uh, can you play the bass? And he goes, uh, no, but I learn. So the thing is that... Oh, but I have a van. Yeah, I have a van. So the thing is, some people are playing instruments in bands and they aren't very technical or they haven't had maybe good tuition. But, they, but over the years, they become really good players and stuff. But then what happens is if you bring in somebody who's very technical and very good and, and can play anything, of course, it's going to make a huge difference to the sound, isn't it, as well? Big time. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and uh, you know, so unfortunately, Rick got cancer. He got something called multiple myeloma back in around 2015. We had a really big tour planned. I think it was for 16 or 17. A lot of arenas were already sold out and we had to cancel the whole thing. And he's in remission. He's doing fine, but he just doesn't. I think he just turned 79. So uh, last Saturday. So I talked to him and he just doesn't have the energy to put together one of these monster tours with 10 semi trucks and, you know, the whole the whole big thing. So. It's too bad. I think the touring days are really over. However, I would love to see us do some sort of a residency somewhere. The only place that comes to mind here is Las Vegas. And uh, he kind of he hates Vegas. But I just went and saw Sting in Vegas do his show. And uh, since I've been playing with Stuart, I got some backstage passes and everything. And he was tremendous. And it was a great rock concert. You know, I mean, it was, it was the real thing. So um, I loved it. That's cool. And when you look back on, you know, the time you spent playing with Supertramp, was the one song that you loved to play the most? Wow. I love to play uh, the song Crime of the Century. We did that every night last. And uh, although I didn't have a big solo in it, um, it was still a lot of fun. And um, and you just I just love that song. You know, you know, you know, the tune it's off the album by the same name. Yes, yes, yeah, yes. It's kind of a really heavy kind of a ballady thing. And uh, there's a part in the tune where this piano plays this figure and um, four times and then the whole band comes in and the drummer hits a gong. And at that point, back in the really old days, they had 100 airport landing lights that went off, bam, from the lighting truss and lit up, the blinded the audience that moment, right? So... Um, I knew it was coming, so I kept a camera on one of my speaker cabinets, and I didn't have to play on that downbeat. So I'd reach back while the lights were down and everything, and get my camera, and I knew the exact beat, and I hit it. And uh, I got some amazing pictures of these huge, huge audiences. One, one is like uh, half a million people, you know, and, and some some giant festivals, one hundred and sixty thousand, you know, that kind of thing, and. Um, with digital cameras in your phone, there's a delay, so I could never get it. It had to be a real click. You'd have to go before the beast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd have to figure that out, and I never got it right, so I just quit doing it. 
you know, when with your own band, you know, the Carl Verheyen band as such, you know, when you started that, tell us about the inception of that, because you have been playing with so many different artists and doing session work. You know, was it something that in the early days you said, I want to have my band kind of running in the background of this all the time? Yeah, if you go all the way back to my teenage years, I had a girlfriend and I, she goes, what are you going to do when you grow up? And I go, here's how it's going to be. I'm going to make a record. And then I'm going to go tour uh, all over the world. Then I'm going to come back and make another record the next year and tour all over the world. And that's going to be my life. I'm going to be that artist. I'm going to be Roger McGuinn or George Harrison or Eric Clapton or one of those guys. <clears throat> In the end, you know, what, what happened was studio work was this gigantic detour, uh, you know, because that's basically what I'm doing now. I wouldn't trade my life for a minute because, um, that was a great experience and it's still going on. I'm still doing recording sessions uh, occasionally, you know, and producing people. But um, the, the, the inception of the band was after that first Supertramp tour, I figured, okay, now I'm a rock star. It'll be no problem getting a deal, <laughs> a record deal. And, uh, <laughs> you know, reality was, no, you're not. You're a sideman in a, in a, in a, in a band of some rock stars. You know, that was the reality, but I'm, I'm like 20, yeah. 30 years old. But anyway, um, I did get a record deal and I came out with my first record, uh, 1986, 87, right in there after the first Supertramp tours, because I toured 85 and 86 and then we were done for a while. Um, so I put out a record and, uh, you know, it didn't happen till the second record that I could start, you know, getting some inroads into bigger crowds at gigs. And then the third record, a one called Slang Justice, which was kind of a bluesy record. I played the Long Beach Blues Festival and there was another guitar player there named Walter Trout. And he said, um, hey man, I like the way you play. Do you have any distribution in Europe? And I said, no, just the US. And he goes, I'm going there tomorrow. Give me a CD and I'll hand it to my record company president there and see if he wants to sign you. And I go, well, wow, that'd be great. Would you, would you, would you? And I gave him the CD. He goes, but let me warn you, I've given him 50 records and he's never picked one person. He's hated everything. So he goes, at least 50. So anyway, that following Friday, I got a call from their record company saying, we want, we want to sign you, but you have to promise you'll tour here. And I said, in a heartbeat, you know, I'd love to. So that basically was around 97. And that's when I started uh, getting out there and touring Europe and, and the US. I, I still haven't done a concert of my own in South America or Japan. It's just never been right. You know, the money's not been right. I would lose too much money, that kind of thing. So anyway, that was kind of the inception of it. Once 1997, and my third album came around, that's when I was really able to get going, get started and, uh, you know, get out there and tour with a steady working group all the time. You know, if, I think for some session musicians, they maybe get more session work than they have touring. They might have like studio work, they might have touring work, but then they mightn't get the time or the opportunity to do the, what they want to do with their own band, whether it be for financial reasons or whether it be just not working with the right people. So I think you, in your world at, over the last few years, you've got to experience all of those things. You've worked with some amazing artists like and producers. You've got to play with Supertramp and you've got to do your own band, which has been successful. That's great. 
Yeah, you know, th there was a period, though, like this transitional period from being uh, 10 sessions a week, eight to 10 sessions a week studio guy to like, okay, now I have a one month tour and I'm going to lose money on the one month tour because just one of those weeks might be a movie date that would pay more than I'm going to make the whole tour. But I prioritized and I just said, what do I really want to do with my life? And, and that was, it's more soul satisfying to me to play in front of a bunch of people and my own songs and the whole front row is singing along. Much more satisfying than sitting in a room with headphones on playing, you know, a cue for a sitcom. You know what I mean? You know, because that might be a, a sitcom thing. You know, a TV sitcom might be, you know, done. Okay, next. Interludes and cut to scene and everything, yeah. Fade to black, happy to sad, all that kind of stuff. So it wasn't all like that, the studio work, but it, you know that, that to me was just work, right? As opposed to getting out and playing in front of people and playing stuff that really challenges me and try to, you know, there, there's, a certain, um, there's a certain joy and something I'm really thankful for, and that is being driven around all day long where you can think about how can I make tonight's performance better than last night and think about, you know, let's, let's debrief a little bit. What did I do? Okay. On that, on that one tune where I had that difficult figure, you know, I have a, like a figure that I kept messing up. All right. I'm just going to get to the, get to the sound check and just practice that 20 times to where I can do it, you know? So uh, that, that's a privilege, I think. That's a privilege to be out on tour and be, you know, it's hard work. I mean, my wife's coming on some tours and going, God, you guys work your butts off, you know? But uh, the hotel life is not easy as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the difference between Tramp and a private jet and a five-star hotel and my band, which is, a, you know, a Mercedes Sprinter and a guy driving the gear too, you know? The difference is, is a whole other thing, you know, so. Different, I can imagine. But, you know, they, they're each rewarding in their own way. And maybe on the smaller tours, maybe you get more time to think and work on new material because you don't have as much press and things like that, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah, exactly. So for you, then you, that was an interesting point you made about missing, you know, you can have lucrative session work that you may miss out on. But now with modern technology, I'm sure that if you're doing a tour in Europe and then your producer rings you and says, listen, this sitcom, they need a part. You can like digitally with F FTP and all that. You can do that over the net now. No. Yeah, I have done that a little bit, too. I've done I've done jingles and some. You know, there was a TV show called Lost. I played on that one from, from you know, a distance. And uh, now I, you know, my home studio is such that I could do a lot of stuff here. Played on a guy's German record and every played every song here just in, in, in this room. And uh, um, it's, it's, it's selling well. <laughs> so yeah, technology is really amazing. You know, there's nothing like that feeling, obviously, of being in the studio and having the equipment around you and the engineers. So... When you're doing it at home, does it change your playing, do you think? Well, yeah, you, you, you're not getting that inspiration of watching the drummer and watching the, it's, it's definitely different, you know. And that's why all my records, I, I, I don't do them in the box like that. I do them in a room 
and uh, hire the best musicians. And, and, you know, we talk through, we do a take, we listen, we come back out, you know. The other thing about doing stuff at a home studio, and I, I, I almost pity the people that only do that kind of work, because when you go into these big, amazing studios here in Los Angeles, like uh, the Village Recorders or Sunset Sound or Capitol Records, uh, some of these big rooms, and you're hearing your sound played back over the big, I call them the party speakers, you know, the big speakers, you really get to analyze your tone as opposed to your little home studio, what that sounds like. Um, you really hear what it's doing and it's very inspiring, you know, so. How do you feel then as well about that? Two words that I kind of have heard people say and I always consider them. When it comes to music, how do you feel about the whole personal bias? Because, for example, when if you, you know, hear your your demo of your songs at home and you're like, I think that's actually a good song. That could be a contender. And then you go to the studio. But like you said, when you hear your song through the party speakers and you go, damn, that is a good song. So do you feel that the better equipment you have and the better sound you can get, it adds to personal bias or it, it's you're more critical of what comes out? I think you're more critical. But if it's a good song, it does confirm, you know, like, hey, I was right. That yeah, it's good. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, I take really a lot of time to think about each part that's going to go on my record. And on other people's records, I take a lot of time going, uh, I don't need any more in the in the mid range. For instance, if you have something like um, a groove like. Well, I could put a looper. Let's see if I do that. Uh, if I go. Um, OK, now I got that going on. A rhythm part that comes to mind might be like. But see, to my ears, to my ears, that's down in the mid-range where you're going to have keyboards, you're going to have, you know, you're going to have all kinds of things uh, jockeying for position in the mid-range. You could take it up, up an inversion, you know, even. And that might work better. It's basically the same part, right? But then I might think, what if I syncopate a little bit? What if I use some uh, what we call skank playing? Skank means like you hit all six strings, but you only sound one. You mute everything else. So I, uh, I might come up with something like... Uh, yeah, like this. Let me get the groove. You're nearly double timing us, aren't you? Yeah, I got I got real busy. I got really busy, but maybe that's the section you you know that you can use that in. Um, the, the producer might say, hey, that's a little too busy, Carl. And I say, I'll take Fridays off. <laughs> if he says, you're too busy, take Fridays off. So I might simplify. You know, or, or how about. You know, in other words, you just kind of find that part that's going to fit in. 
and then you decide, all right, then what if it needs some chorusing? What if it needs some delay? Uh, and what if it needs some kind of a wiggle tone, some tremolo? It could be all kinds of different things that make it work in the track. So, wow, that's really cool. It's nice, and it's nice to fit into those pockets, isn't it? Those little yeah, yeah. you find those pockets within the beat, and the pockets within the, the even the bass line, for example. Sure. Yeah. Exactly. Sounds like you're quite a player. No, I I I don't play as much as I used to. I I wish I did play more now, but I I used to play a lot and played a lot of bands and stuff. But the thing is, I'm always I love when I'm speaking to guitar players like you because it inspires me to play more. You know that kind of way. So and I love that. I love that in when you're recording stuff and you find things within the melody that opens up all other melodies, doesn't it? You know and which moves yeah. me on to my next point because you know you're a guitar teacher too and you know with your instructional books and videos with true fire and teaching in universities and colleges that also is another you know major string to your bow and is that something that you do a lot now still well i stopped teaching in those universities because they had a course called advanced electric guitar in the style of carl verheyen which was quite an ego bump but yeah. on the other hand only I can do it, so <laughs> I can't really sub it out. Uh, and so as yeah. I went on the road more and just got to, you know, to where I had to cancel, you know, they, they, I, I, it just got to a point where I couldn't pull it off and do the solo artist thing, too. So I don't do that as much. Um, the online stuff, like my own little one, it's called the CB Academy on my website. I constantly update uh, videos on there, and there's like 275 of them. That's also available on on Truefire, and I do some private lessons here and Skype, Zoom, that kind of stuff. But I find I find teaching um, to a good student is is invigorating for me. You know, you're you're turning, you're, first of all, you're passing it on to the next generation, so they don't just become a bunch of typers. You know, they actually make music with their hands. That's a beautiful thing. And the other thing is um, when you get somebody who you see the light bulb going off and all of a sudden he gets it and he's you know playing better than last week or last month or whatever that's that's something i really enjoy doing you know the, the, the good student the session work because you've worked with some amazing artists and you know there's such a long list of artists do you ever get starstruck in the sense that you're thinking oh i'm i'm going to play with Dolly Parton or i'm going to play with the Bee Gees or i'm going to play with anybody and i'm not sure if is the idea or the idea I have is the right idea for them. You know, have you found yourself kind of stuck sometimes? No, I think I go into it, and th this is a this is a healthy attitude that I can pass on to your listeners. I go into there going, you know what? I'm the expert in the room when it comes to guitar, guitar parts, guitar sounds. Right. I'm the expert. They can tell. A lot of producers don't know what they want till they hear it. A lot of artists don't know what they want till they hear it. You know, um, you, you can play something and they'll say, don't play that. That sounds like Andy Summers. And they go, he's cool in my book. But here, I'll give you another idea. Yeah. Oh, don't play that. That sounds like Steely Dan. Well, I kind of love Steely Dan, too. But I'll give you something else. You know, you go, how about make it more R&B? And you go, well, OK, but it's not an R&B song. But, you know, but I'm the expert in the room. So my confidence uh, over the years built up to a point where nothing like that would phase me. And um, I only had one or two producers in the in my life be really nasty, you know, to me, just like, you know, have a bad attitude. And I just let it, you know, slide off my shoulders, just thinking, 
you know, I'm the expert here. Don't worry about it. I, I'm going to come up with the part that's going to work for you. You know, I don't say that, but it's in my mind. So, yeah, because I think what it is with, you know, people in the music industry, for example, and with producers, they are, they can be guitar players or they can be guitar players who didn't fulfill what they wanted to do. And, you know, they might have some great ideas, but they can't carry it out. They don't have the chops. So the thing about it is a lot of the time they want to tell the guitar player, this is how I want you to play it. But the guitar player maybe is like, yeah, but we could do it differently. And there's better ways to do that. I've said that many times. Yeah. And you, you might say, for example, we could harmonize stuff, you know, like the Almond Brothers, like Thin Lizzy, whatever. There's ways we can do this. And they're kind of going, no, no, I don't want that. And you say, well, can I just show you maybe? So I'm sure you have those little debates, no? Many times, you know, they'll write something out and I go, well, you've written a seven note chord. I've got six notes available if I use them all. So here's what a guitar player would do. They would knock out that one and that one and they'd have this exact voicing and it's just exactly what you were looking for, uh, for the, playable on the guitar. But this, this confidence concept, uh, it works for stage fright too. If you're ever, you know, if you're ever like thinking, "Oh my God, I got to go out there," and there's some really great, there's some really great players in the audience. I gotta, I gotta measure up. You know, you can just put yourself in the mindset of, "Yeah, but I'm the best Carl Verheyen there is." You know, I, I, I might not even be the best player in this room. There might be some much heavier cats in the room checking me out. But today, and in this hundred mile radius. I'm the best, I'm the best me there is. And you can use that to just take a deep breath and go out and kick some ass. You know, that's, that's my theory. Uh, and, and it, it carried over from the studio that, that, um, confidence I got from after a thousand sessions going, all right, you know, I know what I'm doing here. This is, uh, you know, they can't, they can't stump me because if I can't do it, nobody can. <laughs> that's the way I look. And that's your craft now. And you know, it's like, it doesn't matter when you're a master craftsman in any kind of trade or any way of life, once you get to that certain level, all those years you've built up the experience all comes to fruition. And you say, yeah, that doesn't phase me, you know? And I suppose what it is over the years, you learn to believe in yourself more and more, don't you? Yeah, yeah, you do. But you hit on an interesting thing, Simon. At some point in the last 30 years, I realized I need to divide my, my career into three parts. So one is the craftsman, you know, the craftsman, the master craftsman is the guy who walks into a recording session and they go, we need that ZZ Top sound, right? So my mind goes, okay, ZZ Top, that's Billy Gibbons. He plays a Les Paul back pickup through like a Fender Champ amp, uses a lot of those pinch harmonics with the pick. He's got the Texas shuffle feel, which is different than the Chicago shuffle feel. Boom, here it is. I'm a big fan of Bailey Gibbons. Here it is. That's that well-listened craftsman thing. It's like a plumber coming in. Plumber comes in and goes, oh, okay, under the sink here, I see you've got a leaky thing. I'm going to go get a, you know, a two and a half inch pipe and a street elbow and a coupler and a, it's out in the truck. You know, I go over to the guitar trunk and pull out the guitar. Um, so then the second career would be, uh, uh, you know, the sideman, uh, like in Supertramp. For Supertramp, I can put a lot of my own thing in, but but really what I needed to do and what I need to do when I work with Stuart Copeland playing this police deranged for orchestra or any any kind of a situation where you're a sideman, you realize that the musical vision of this project is by that guy over there. 
in Super Tramp, it's sort of this, you know, it's Rick Davies and Roger Hodson's. It's kind of like a very progressive rock meets English dance hall music meets pop, you know. And you got to have to keep keep whatever you come up with in that framework. So then the third career is solo artist, where I can do whatever I want to do, whatever I think, you know. If I don't hear, if I don't hear a D chord like this, but instead like that or like this or like this, I can put that in. You, know, you see what I mean? So you can make it your own, and that's that's why really I have to realize the different levels of creativity and uh, you can change and it. I think of it as three different careers. Really. It's kind of a cool, cool way to process it all. <laughs> One thing just going back kind of to the gear and, you know, having the sounds and you made an interesting point there where you, let's say, you know, you're trying to maybe not replicate that Billy Gibbon sound, but you're trying to get something similar. So you're like, Oh, I have to use this guitar or I have to use that amp and we have to mic it this way. And for example, you know, if you're doing Eddie Van Halen and you're trying to get the Brown sound and so on through the years, then obviously when you're working with a lot of gear, when you, when it came to, for example, modeling amps, modeling guitars, even like I have a Variax guitar there I've used on some of my own recordings. And so sometimes you have a guitar that can replicate other guitars. So with you having like lots, a big guitar collection is, are there times when you're thinking there's this guitar I need, or maybe I need something more digital? Like how, how do you go about that stage nowadays? Do you always have 12 guitars you bring for sessions? Well, if I go work uh, in a studio, I do have a 12 guitar trunk that's electrics and a 10 guitar acoustic trunk. And I have a, uh, another trunk that can hold banjos, mandolins, dobros, things, things, you know, ukulele, things like that. If it's a big movie date or something, yeah, I'm going to have those three trunks delivered. Um, if I know that I'm just doing electric guitar overdubs uh, and I know that I can well, if it's if there is cartage, meaning they're going to pay for the stuff to be delivered, I'll send the electric trunk and the rig that's appropriate for the style of music, rough, roughly. You know, um, if it's a home session, I got pretty much everything here. You know, I can. Uh, it used to be that when I was doing nonstop studio work and not touring as much, you kept your gear in a warehouse, a cartage warehouse, and you say, okay, bring this trunk number two and three, and bring this the rack stuff and bring these two pedal boards and set up at MGM, Sony studios, 10 o'clock start Thursday. And it would all be there turned on guitars out and tuned. Sometimes, you know, if you asked them to, um, sometimes I'd have them just tune it, tune some instruments that I knew I was going to play. Uh, um, th those days I'm not doing so much of that anymore, you know, but you know, there's nothing more cause I do have a very ax too. And I only use it for the sitar sound. <laughs> the sitar sound, is, okay, the yeah, sitar yeah. sound is really good. Um, so, no, I pull out a real SG or Flying V or 335 or Les Paul, Strat, Tele. I got some Gretsch guitars. I got some Vox guitars. Um, um, yeah, all kinds of stuff, you know. So it's, 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 good, to, it's good to have your go-to stuff that almost like secret weapons. You know, I know what right, this is going to sound like. Of course, like, yeah. You know, I know what this guitar is going to sound like when I plug it. Yeah, like I, I love that. I was watching your documentary, and I love that part where you're playing the Strat, 
and then you say, I'm going to get something a bit meatier and you reach for the Les Paul and immediately before, as you're reaching for it, you're like, I'm not, probably not going to need a pedal on this, you know, because you know, with the humbuckers, the sound is going to be that little bit dirtier. So that's, a, you know, you can see that's real experience there because I always remember that line I've heard in the last few years where um, John Bon Jovi talks about Jeff Beck just coming into the studio and taking a guitar out of the cardboard box and plugging it directly into the amp. And he did that whole, you know, um, the the Young Guns guitar solo. And you're you're kind of like, some players know their sound before they even plug the guitar in, don't they? Well, you know, so much of it's in the hands and, and you are going to will that instrument to do what it needs to do, you know? It might be a lot of work, you know, some guitars, are more work than others. Some just are so easy to play and, uh, you know, the action height and the string gauge and everything is perfect. Others you got to struggle with a bit, but you're still going to find a way to make it work. I think, I think uh, like I said, most of it is in the hands, you know, and, and uh, every player should have the ability. Let's see if, let's see if I can do a little hair here. If I, if I play a, um, like this C, right, and I shake it a little bit, I should be able to bend exactly to it with no vibrato, right? I should be able to bend exactly to it with no vibrato and then add a little vibrato like a singer, right? I should be able to bend to it with vibrato in motion, right? I should bend into it with big or tight, you know, different speeds. And that was my second finger. Third. All four fingers should be able to do it. And uh, I mean, you know, obviously the first finger is going to have a real hard time bending up there below the fifth fret. But anyway, uh, you, you get those you get those kind of control, the ability to control. Um, the instrument and I think you just find a way to make it work on whatever you're playing. I've had people tell me, that sounds great, Carl. Can you play that on a strat? You know, when I'm playing a telly. Oh no, why don't you try it on a Les Paul? And so each one has a diff well different string tension, uh definitely between the Fenders and the Gibsons, different string, uh, different uh scale length and stuff. So anyway. So maybe you'll just play us out with something nice, maybe something. Oh, okay. I'll just figure something out to play here. And, and uh, it's it's been a pleasure chatting to you and some really insightful, you know, uh, topics there. And, and it's lovely to hear your kind of take on your own playing, you know. Oh, thank you so much. It's been, it's been fun. Yeah. Let's see. What should we play? Uh, lately, I've been, you know, when we were talking about uh, harmony, I've been trying to sing, um, how about?
awesome. Lovely. It sounds really nice. Yeah, you know, uh, that, that, that has an incredible um, B minor 7 flat 5, which when we were kids in 1966 when we wrote it, we had no idea what that chord was, you know, that flat 5 chord. But, man, what a nice resolution to Yeah. Wilson, so. A lovely sound out of that strat too as well. Really nice. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you so much, Carl. And, you know, it's been a pleasure chatting to you. Well, it's been a lot of fun, Simon. Great chatting with you. We Do you want to tell the people in Europe and, and worldwide what's, what's next for you? What's coming up for you? I'm not really coming back to tour Europe until April of 2024. So uh, I usually tour in the fall, but... Um, we're, we're gonna we're gonna hold off this this year and wait wait till the spring so anyway it's gonna be it's gonna be fun we look forward to that and it'd be lovely to see you in spain maybe or in ireland in concert somewhere it'd be really nice yeah either one yeah it'd be lovely yeah, well so. listen thank you for taking the time we want to commend you on a wonderful guitar playing and a wonderful knowledge of the guitar and for giving a great input into lots of different groups whether it be super tramp your own Carl Verheyen band or even your instructional videos. And of course, we didn't talk much about your like sessions and TV work, but you know, there's so much to your play and it's just wonderful. Well, let's do it again sometime. We'll do a part two. We will. We'll get, <laughs> we'll do a part two because I'm sure there's so much more we can get into. So listen, have a lovely day or evening and thank you very much for giving us the time. All right. Thank you, Simon. Take care. Carl Verheyen, everybody. Thank you very much, Carl Verheyen. Some wonderful guitar playing, some wonderful insights into your own career and the careers of Supertramp and all the other bands you've played with. And so interesting to hear about your session work and everything. So I really enjoyed that chat. Being a guitar player, of course, you're inspiring me to play the guitar more. I have to get back to the grind. So thank you very much, Carl. And, you know, wonderful career and long may it continue. Also, to you, the listener, thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed that interview with Carl. We hope it gets you playing and playing better and playing longer and what a wonderful player Carl is and we hope you enjoyed that immensely. So until the next time, we just want to thank you guys for being here and we just like to remind you, please share the show, please review the show, please subscribe. I am your host, Simon K. This is the Collective Whisper Podcast and until the next time, look after your friends and family and the people you love. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.